Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special Citizens United at 10 Symposium episode of the show. In recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, we're interviewing scholars about the research on the decision and the issues that it raises. We're also taking a look forward for things to watch for over the next 10 years. We'll return next week with our regular episodes. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or let others know about the show too. Our next guest on the Business Scholarship Podcast, Citizens United 10 Podcast Symposium, is Sarah Hahn, Associate Professor of Law at Washington Lee University. Sarah holds the distinction of being the first return guest on the show. So Sarah, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and thank you for your suggestion to mark the 10th anniversary of Citizens United on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Andrew. Sarah, I thought we might begin the conversation with a little bit of an overview about the work that you've done in this space, the scholarship that you've done as it relates to Citizens United and corporate political spending and corporate First Amendment rights. Yes. Well, I am now in my eighth year of being a corporate law professor. So I have spent my entire time as a corporate law professor in the sort of Citizens United era. (laughs) And you know, when I originally got into being a corporate law professor, it was such a hot subject at the time back in 2012. And I've written a number of pieces about Citizens United, including, you know, originally I sort of started out doing some empirical stuff and looking broadly at how corporations were engaging in political activity and trying to influence elections. More recently, I published an article called Shareholder Proposal Settlements and the private ordering of public elections in the Yale Law Journal, which was a a more ambitious piece that looked at the super interesting practice of shareholder activists to use a federal securities law mechanism, the shareholder proposal, to force companies to reform their transparency rules. So what shareholders were essentially doing is they were bringing proposals demanding corporate campaign finance disclosure reform on a company-by-company basis, and then they were settling the shareholder proposals by negotiating them with corporate managers and then withdrawing the proposals. And what they were getting in exchange for their withdrawal was settlement agreements that basically made rules for the corporations about how they would disclose their political spending. So that was a super interesting project. And then the broader issue of shareholders settling proposals, that continues to be a subject of great interest, I think, in corporate law. I get a lot of people reaching out about it. I'm now writing a book about corporate democracy. And so that, of course, intersects with important themes in the Citizens United case. And I should also note one of my forthcoming law review articles in the UPenn Journal of Constitutional Law is about Facebook and surveillance capitalism. So looking at how Facebook and other social media companies have been regulating political discourse and how that intersects with their business models. So for me personally, you know, Citizens United has given me a lot of things, a lot of different things to write about. It's a hot topic for policy, and it's also a, a fount of uh, ideas for, for scholarship. And as somebody, as you note, who's grown up as an academic in the Citizens United era, uh, 10 years past that era beginning, what are some of the things that have surprised you about how that case and its implications and its fallout have developed? Or maybe what are some of the things that haven't surprised you as much? Well, you know, when, when Citizens United first came out in January of 2010, the big 
story then was that the Supreme Court had opened the floodgates to corporate political spending. And I suspect that when you ask this question about what were the big surprises after Citizens United came out, when you ask this question to your panelists, I bet at least one panelist will say, we all thought the floodgates were going to open, and then the big surprise was that they didn't. (laughs) And I've certainly heard this narrative from a lot of people. And I want to push back on it a little bit, because I think the big takeaway, maybe not a surprise, but the big takeaway over 10 years is just the extent to which corporate campaign finance transparency has failed us and how loopholes in campaign finance transparency laws have really permitted so much opacity to cover over what companies are doing, what kinds of spending companies are engaging in. So I think anybody who says we know how much companies, especially public companies, are spending to influence elections, and it's not very much. Anybody who says that, I think, is not being careful and diligent about what we actually can say we know or don't know about how much companies spend to influence elections. Transparency loopholes have been a big story for Citizens United from the beginning. As soon as the case came out, election law experts said, wait, 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 um, (laughs) we have some problems here. In 2015, actually, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion, gave an interview at Harvard Law School where he basically admitted that disclosure wasn't working the way that it should. And his opinion really relied heavily on campaign finance disclosure to fix some of the problems raised by corporate spending. But we know now that there are huge amounts of so-called dark money in American elections. So as a result of these transparency loopholes, we really have no idea how much money companies are spending to influence elections. Just to give you a couple of examples, there is an organization called the Center for Political Accountability, the CPA, that does important work in this area. And they've been studying the voluntary corporate campaign finance disclosures of the S&P 500. And in their most recent report, which was 2019, they reported that 316 of the S&P 500 disclosed something about their election-related spending, which means that 184 companies in the S&P 500, that is almost 40% of the S&P 500, disclose absolutely nothing about their campaign finance spending activities. And so this just underscores, I think, that you know, companies could be engaging in classic dark money tactics. They could be donating money to 501c4s and 501c6s. C6s are trade associations. Only 174 of the S&P 500 disclose anything about their payments to those organizations. And so because this is true, I just I, I do want to make the point that I think we cannot conclude now that Citizens United as a decision didn't matter because corporate political spending has turned out to be a big nothing. In fact, we just don't have enough sources of information to draw a conclusion one way or the other. And there could be lots of corporate political spending, electoral spending that we don't know about. I think another surprise for me was just the failure of private ordering 
to fix problems caused by Citizens United. In the years immediately following the opinion, there were a lot of proposals about how private ordering could be used to fix some of the worst effects of the case. And in fact, a long time ago, back in Elizabeth Warren's original Senate contest, there was people's pledge was used as a private ordering technique to try to keep outside spending out of that election. But 10 years out, I think it's fair to say that private ordering has not really produced any big picture fixes for Citizens United. And now you'll notice that people hardly talk about private ordering solutions. Arguably, the most successful private ordering solution is the one that I wrote about in the Yale Law Journal, the campaign to get companies to voluntarily disclose their own spending. Now, I do think there's evidence that shareholder activism has caused some greater voluntary disclosure by big public companies. But, you know, I just provided some statistics a minute ago that, you know, not all companies and still lots of big holes. Another thing I think that has happened since Citizens United came down that maybe would have surprised people in 2009, the appellants who were litigating the case and the court itself were basically two tech-based developments. The meteoric rise of social media as a forum for political discourse, which seems so banal now, right, but wasn't even on anybody's radar screen in 2009. Nine. I know that's so hard to believe, but Facebook was only created in 2004. It didn't go public until 2012. 2012 was really the first year that I think Facebook made much effort to get political advertising. And so in 2009, 2010, we didn't really understand that digital advertising was going to be so important. And the other new technological advancement is the invention of virtual currencies, which also in 2009 was really not on anybody's radar screen. But now you can make a super PAC donation using virtual currency. Virtual currencies are really difficult to track. And so they have contributed to the dark money problem or to the opacity of campaign spending. Both of these developments really compounded the problems created by Citizens United, especially around foreign interference. So the transparency issues, the corporate political speech issue, a lot of foreign electoral interference seems to be done through business entities. These have been compounded by social media and virtual currencies. And so I think it's also interesting when we talk about Citizens United at at year 10 to talk a little bit about how It's only been 10 years and so much has changed. And it's a bit of a cautionary tale, I think. You know, when the Supreme Court thinks about the next time that it wants to completely rewrite an area of law where there has been, you know, a consistent legal regime in place for a number of decades. So here I'm thinking of the administrative state or reproductive rights, right? The Supreme Court should look back at Citizens United and remember that they never anticipated how the rise of social media and digital advertising, how the rise of virtual currencies could happen after the opinion and in a lot of ways sort of upend assumptions that went into the opinion. I mean, on digital advertising alone, I mean, to this day, digital advertising remains 
outside our campaign finance disclosure regime. Digital ads are not accounted for in, they don't get disclaimers, there's much limited, more limited disclosure of digital ads. And Congress really needs to fix that problem. But here we are 10 years out and facing down another full-term federal election with digital ads outside that regime. So I also think that um, maybe at the 10-year mark, we can look back and say Citizens United remains maybe a symbol of the need for judicial restraint in light of how rapidly technology is changing and upending assumptions. One of the things that I've thought about during this discussion of some of the surprises and open questions around Citizens United is that old allegory of the person who's lost his keys at night. Uh, he's looking, pacing back and forth under the street lamp, and there are no keys under the street lamp. And somebody asks, why are you looking for your keys there? And he replies, that's where the light is. And so quite a bit that might be in the, the shadows off to the area that we have visibility. So that was 10 years looking back. Looking forward 10 years, what are some things that you're going to be watching for? Or what are some predictions that you might have for developments in campaign finance, developments in corporate laws that might relate to Citizens United? Well, the big one, of course, is I think we all need to keep our eye on corporate electoral spending. I mean, despite the fact that most big companies don't choose to openly spend a lot of money to influence elections today, or at least we don't see evidence of that, right? So I just want to be be clear that, you know, there's so much dark money, but despite the fact that we kind of can't point our finger at a lot of big corporate spending, everybody should understand that the law absolutely would allow huge amounts of corporate spending. And so companies have spent the last 10 years exercising a lot of caution and self-control, but there's nothing holding them back in the future from flooding some future election with a lot of money. So one thing that I'm going to be looking for, and I think we'll all probably be attuned to, is whether patterns in corporate spending change, whether companies get more aggressive. For example, if Elizabeth Warren were to be elected president or Bernie Sanders, and we were to see a lot of pressure on companies, companies might decide to turn up the juice on that kind of reform. I think also, I was just talking a little bit about digital advertising and how, you know, longstanding campaign finance disclosure laws haven't really effectively dealt with digital advertising. And I think we probably can look to some changes in that in the future, but not before the election. So like a lot of people, I'm a little bit nervous about what this 2020 election holds in terms of social media and digital advertising. But I think after the election, we'll probably see Congress move in and pass some laws that update campaign finance disclosure and that put a little bit more pressure on companies that are in the digital companies, thinking like Facebook and Twitter, that engage in surveillance capitalism. More pressure on them to be more fulsome in disclosures, to be accurate in disclosures, and to divulge more about what parts of their business, how much money come from um, political advertising, and of course, the perennial question of foreign interference. Uh, to me, one of the most interesting things that I'm going to be paying attention to going forward is the role of the corporate board in corporate political spending oversight 
So before Citizens United was decided, uh, most big companies just had a government relations department, and the head of that department was not a C-suite executive or officer and really spent the company's money with little oversight. But this wasn't much of a problem because remember, before Citizens United, federal law really limited corporations' treasury spending, both on direct candidate contributions and then also on independent expenditures. So there was really little concern that corporate officers or that this head of government relations was going nuts spending money from the corporate treasury. But then after Citizens United was decided, it became clear that this whole new space had opened up for corporate managers to spend significant sums of treasury money on independent expenditures. And when that happened, we saw new calls for different forms of oversight within the firm of corporate political spending to deal with what was essentially a new potential category of agency costs, right? Because the fear is that corporate managers were going to start engaging in independent expenditures in order to maybe enrich themselves at the expense of the company, basically a form of self-dealing, or they would waste the company's money on wasteful political spending. And so after Citizens United came down, there were some influential business organizations like the Business Roundtable and the Conference Board that came out with new publications recommending governance practices to enhance oversight of political spending and to you know, reduce agency costs. So for example, in 2016, the Business Roundtable formally endorsed board oversight, board level oversight of political spending. And this is something that I'm paying close attention to. I mean, Ironically, when I first saw the push for board oversight, and a lot of that came from the Center for Political Accountability, I brushed it off. I thought it was sort of window dressing and didn't have a lot of teeth. But over time, I've come around to the view that board oversight may be more significant than I originally thought. I think in part, this is because at a lot of public companies, the board can have political diversity. So you might find a big company's board with Republicans and Democrats. And so if oversight of the company's electoral spending, which we already know is risky, if that oversight trickles up to the board where you've got basically a mix of Democrats and Republicans, the spending out of that company is not likely to be or, or is maybe less likely to be politically biased. Now, every person on that board is going to be a millionaire. So maybe the spending would still be biased in favor of policies that benefit millionaires. But, you know, in the conventional dichotomy between Democrats and Republicans, I think actually public companies' boards tend to be neutral. And so it turns out that board oversight might be one of several mechanisms that are actually working to constrain corporate spending, to constrain agency costs, wasteful spending, or self-dealing spending. And so going forward, I am going to be researching board oversight of corporate political spending. I'm interested in particular in the practice of boards assigning political spending oversight to a particular board committee. I'm really interested to see where that goes. So that's an overview of, I think, maybe 
the next 10 years of Citizens United if we don't get a, an amendment, a constitutional amendment to overturn the case. So maybe some things to look forward to or watch for over the next 10 years, and maybe some of them will be things to watch for in the short term as well. Our guest on this episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast, Citizens United at 10 Podcast Symposium, has been Sarah Hahn, Associate Professor of Law at Washington Lee University. Sarah, thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.